Hey Dan Talks listeners, welcome to another episode of Dan Talks. I'm so excited for this week's guest. I am talking to Jill Shearer Murray, who has a TED Talk that has reached almost 4 million views on YouTube. The talk is called The Unstoppable Power of Letting Go. It's linked in the episode description. And Jill is also the author of Big Wild Love, which is available now. And we talk all about letting go, closure, moving on. I really appreciated Jill's uh, thoughts about forgiveness. And you'll you'll tell immediately that Jill is just such a joy and so um, so full of light. And it was such a privilege to connect with her. So without further ado, please enjoy Jill Shira Murray. Jill, what do you have to let go of? What have you I'm not so, let? What have you not let go of? I have so many things to let go of. It's like <laughs> never-ending. It's like a never-ending stream of things that I have to let go of. Sometimes I have to let go of them, Dan, over and over and over. The author right? because, of the you know, book about letting go still has a long list. <laughs> yeah, it's true. You know how fun would life be if there weren't things we needed to like acquire and then release acquire and then release it's like an it's like a circle all the time Mm -hmm. I know it's so funny too because I think that I love that you just like launched me into this question because I think that people think because you know I gave this big TED talk and I have a book about letting go that it's like I have nothing left and (laughs) (laughs) hi I'm here to break that myth floating in the ether holding on to nothing (laughs) no like I'll tell you an example, I, I walk every morning with my husband and we practically live in our township park. And for the like couple of years ago, I left my, I let go of my day job, my, um, my corporate day job to move on and do new things. This is where letting go is always happening. And even like I was spinning on a friend who was making some very bad decisions in love. Although I talk more, I talk about beyond just love, but And I was just spinning on them and spinning on them every day. And finally, my husband looked at me and he's like, please get in your process and let go of this because I don't want to hear about it anymore. And I did. And you know, Dan, you know what I realized? I realized that I was holding on to her crap because I didn't want to look at my own. I was getting ready to make a really big leap, a really big change. And it was way more you know, fun and interesting and delightful to be focused on somebody else's universe than my own in that moment. But yeah, I got to let go of stuff all the time, mm-hmm. all the time. Now, I'm like that- a letting go factory. <laughs> I'm like a factory for things that <laughs> I need to let go of. In your TED talk, you talked about being in a relationship where he didn't want, well, he didn't want to get married is the short version. Yeah. You wanted to yeah. get married. He didn't want to get married. That is the, the shortest, the, the shortest so story short. long that one could do. Or long right. story short, the one could do. Um, what was the um, the the breaking point was looking at the apartments. Yes, I yes love the story because I had a brief stint as a real estate agent. I used to live in New York. Real estate, I like Ugh. it's one of my love languages. Okay, I can't Good express times for the, you. Yeah, Good I times for you. I can't express the fury that I would mm. feel if I was mm. at an apartment mm. and my long time boyfriend of over 10 years mm-hmm. said I will be there mm-hmm. does not respond does not show up to see yeah, the apartment but, we would move into 
But I would put that question back to you, Dan, and I would say, who would you be mad at? Him. <laughs> <laughs> okay. H-I-M, capital H-I-M. <laughs> okay, you should not be writing the book on letting go. No, no. no. <laughs> I absolutely am not. I'm writing, my book is holding on how to take it to your grave. Oh my God, that's hysterical. No, yes. I mean, it was, you know, partly I feel like I was really a glutton for punishment though, you know, because here I was like, I was like holding onto the side of the cliff and that it was a revelation or shocking in any way, shape or form that he didn't show up was really on me Um, because there were absolutely no signs to the contrary that he was actually going to show up. Like, even if he was physically embodied there, he was not going to be emotionally, spiritually, mentally in that space. I'm not, to this day, I'm not fully sure why he even agreed to do it other than maybe to, in some way, placate me, but he wasn't that person. He did what he wanted to do and he was a lovely person. So this is like no shade to him, but yeah, it was, I, you know, as a realtor, I can't, ma- one of the former, realtors, former, f- former, former, form, uh, former, reformed, <laughs> as a reformed realtor, <laughs> it was as, six a, months. as a recovering, as a recovering realtor. I had six months. I saw beautiful apartments and I was like, I can't do this. <laughs> <laughs> right. Cause you want them all. Well, right. I want them all. I want to shop for myself. And I thought, oh, no one's your boss. But the truth is everyone's your boss. Everyone. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. That's the truth. That's good. See, that's good. See, okay. But you know, I, I, um, I, I, I was glad that one of the realtors was a friend of mine. So she knew the, she knew the narrative, you know, she knew what was happening and she was, I was so grateful that she was there. Um, I can't imagine what it, it must be like being the other realtor. And I'm sure realtors see all kinds of stuff, all kinds of stuff. So they're, you know, they're probably like, okay, this is just, you know, another one for the storybooks. But yeah, it was, it was a devastating and yet powerfully, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Powerfully, like enlightening, much needed, wake up, smack in the head, smack in the butt, you know, whatever it was. And I, and that I was not only needed, but that I was ready for, that I was ready to read as it was. Mm-hmm. It's hard yeah. when you, when you live out the metaphor. <laughs> yeah. When you're like, when it's like, I feel like I'm standing in an apartment that we're going to move into and he's not showing up. It's, it's yeah, the, right. the metaphor becomes right. your life. That's right. That's right. And I had to be immersed and dropped into that in order to be able to actually see it for what mm-hmm. it was. And so know- I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And so, no, go ahead. No, you go. I was going to say, do you know that both Oprah and Gail have held <laughs> on to the bumpers of cars as the man has driven away? <laughs> they have these a video. I've watched probably every video there is of the two of them talking about anything. Oh they my God. Respectively held on to bumpers of vehicles of men. <laughs> I Oprah think it's going to be my favorite podcast. I think this is going to be my favorite <laughs> podcast yet. You've met one person that watched more Oprah videos than you. <laughs> oh are my you, God, poor Oprah. Yes. Are you an Oprah fan, Brene fan? I, I, am I a Brene fan, did you say? Yeah, I put them yeah, in the Brene, same basketball. Yeah, 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 Brene <laughs> Yeah, Brene. I do, yeah. Yeah, Beyonce Knowles. Brene, yeah. <laughs> I do. I, I am an Oprah fan and I am a Brene fan. Yes, I am. I mean, could I recite like, 
you know, all, like, could I re- recite their words or no, I could not do that. Are you, but, am I Dan? No. <laughs> right. Am I Dan? No. But if I was locked in like an elevator with them, would I enjoy the ride? Sure. Yes, uh-huh. I would. Abso- uh-huh. Absolutely. For sure. Um, I like and admire them both. I do. I want to talk. For sure. I want to talk about um, the TED Talk, both literally like the day, and then also <laughs> like the after. So, literally the day. Do you think to yourself like this is my break? No. What do you think? No. I, you know, Dan, I got on that stage. I had no agenda at all. I had no idea what was going to happen to me. In fact, I will tell you that I love TED Talks. I love them. I I used to sit for hours and just watch, like roll from one right into the other, and I would think gosh, I would really love to do this. I would really love to give a TED talk. And then an event happened to me. I lost someone that I loved and it just, it riled me up in such a new and deep and profound way that I was like, I, I have something that I really need to say. I really need to get out to the world. I've always been a speaker in corporate America. I've always been the one who's, you know, kind of been loud in the room, been up on stage. I'm not shy. You've been on the phone with me for, you know, what, 15 seconds. You can probably figure that out by now. And so I love to speak. I love to write. And I had such a burning like passion for this message that I myself needed to hear that I just decided I was going to, you know, go for this thing and do this thing. And I had no idea. In fact, I was on a stage with 25 other unbelievable women. They were incredible. I mean, these women were like, they'd survived like every bout of cancer imaginable. And now they were like repelling off the side of like large mountains. They had gone to third world countries and like supplied like 800,000 pairs of underwear to underprivileged girls. Like they were lobbying at the Pentagon for families. Like they're doing amazing, amazing things. And I remember saying to my husband, I am talking about a breakup, even though <laughs> I knew It was about more, but like, as the day got closer, I thought to myself, they're going to boo me off the stage. They're going to like, they're going to pull out the umbrella and like drag me to the side. Wah, wah, bitch. Right. (laughs) Yes. I, I was imposter syndrome was like, I slept in it. I ate in it. I, you know, all the feelings about that before I got up on stage and I thought, you know what? I'm going to do it because it's in me. And I really feel like I need to just get up there and, and talk about it. And I figured, you know, at least my parents would watch it. You know, he would watch it. <laughs> my friends would watch it. Like I would like make them go to their neighbor's house on a new IP address that would watch it. Like maybe I'd get a hundred views. And so I had no idea. I had absolutely no idea. I'm laughing because had, today it's almost at 4 million. Which is, yes. Which I'm going to tell you, I'll tell you what, Dan. I'm so happy about that and not because it has anything to do with me. I'm, I mean, when I think about it, I could cry literally and truly because I have heard from so many people. I, I wish that I had that information when I was stuck, when I was younger and making such crappy choices, you know, in love and life. And I hadn't really you know, I love my parents. I love my mother, but you know, the woman who raised me to be out in the world as a single woman alone in a big city, working a job was Mary Tyler Moore. That was it, you know, and I couldn't call her up and ask her any questions. Mm -hmm. Like 
this was what my generation had. And so, and when, you know, you, when you're out into the world and so many women and men struggle with this, which is we lack, you know, the vision of ourselves that we need in order to make better choices for ourselves. And so that's where I lived. So when I have people come to me from all over the world, you know, talking to me about their situations and, and looking for help and advice, it's like, or watching my talk or buying my book or whatever they're doing, I just feel so happy because I feel like I couldn't do that for myself. I do that for myself now, but if I can do that for, it sounds so corny and cliched, but if I can do that for one person, if I can have 4 million people take 11 minutes out of their life to find value in, you know, my lived experience, I I'm just so grateful. And, and I'm surprised. I had no idea. I had no idea. Well, something you do so well in the talk is you make it clear, you make it both specific and, and not, it's both specific. It's both so deeply about you and deeply about everyone's experience that we all all have had that, had, we've all had that experience of arguing against reality. Yes. Yes. Thank you for that. That's, that's a really lovely compliment. And it's true. We, uh, we have, you know, we're all kind of living the same life, you know, in so many ways, we have so many shared experiences and we are fighting our reality and it's, it's exhausting Mm -hmm. and it's, it, it takes us to the things we need to learn and understand about ourselves and our lives. So it's productive in that sense, but at the same time, do we have to do it for quite so long? You know what I mean? Like, yes. Yes. Now, now what do you think is the difference between letting go, accepting and addressing? Yeah. I always, I talk about this a lot. Actually, I talk about how like letting go is very different from the short-term strategies of accepting or normalizing or coping or just like putting a bandaid on the situation, which all three of those things can do and even giving up. Because there's nothing defeatist about letting go. Letting go is an act of empowerment. And it is an act of detachment. And that's what's different. You know, when we accept, I accepted that my boyfriend was really a good guy. And I was super lucky to have found him. And so I will accept that he will never marry me. Or he's a really good guy. And so I'm just going to cope with all of these feelings that I have and watching everybody else that I have ever known since childbirth, you know, get married and move on and have this life that I would like to have, or I'm going to just give up in a, in a fury of anger or sadness or bitterness or resentment because wah, wah, I didn't get the thing I wanted. None of those things are about letting go. They're, they're, they're strategies for being able to survive in your, in the choices that you've made and, or to leave them with a sense of feeling like a victim. And I'm not, I'm not down for that, you know, and we've all gone through that. I've had plenty of victim moments. Believe me, I have spent a lot of time in the bathroom crying with cookies, believe me. But by the time we're ready to like actually acknowledge the reality of the situation and let go, it has to be with, um, humility and grace and, and clarity 
and real true love for ourselves and value for ourselves. And that's the difference to me between actually letting go and, you know, these other experiences that are not about letting go at all. Something that I struggle with is there's something like weirdly, not even weirdly, there's something gratifying about being the victim. Where it's like, well, yeah, like, because it makes everyone else sort of bad, or X person bad. And for there's something validating about, I don't know if validating is the right word, but you know what I'm getting at? It's easy. There's the payoff for being a victim is that you never have to look really hard at yourself. Because if it's (sighs) not your fault, (laughs) because it's not your fault, about other people, Mm because it's not your fault. If it's not your fault, or if you just like randomly, like, you know, divined by the universe to just be a punching bag or never have any of the things that you want, there's no work that has to be done on your part. Mm. It's just more bathroom time and cookies. Mm -hmm. Right? It's Mm -hmm. just, you know, but until the day comes where you're looking around and you're like, okay, really nobody cares that I'm a victim. (laughs) I can... Jill, you're hitting me hard. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh, keep going. But But you know what I'm saying. It's like, first of all, nobody wants to hang out with someone who's constantly a victim. So, you know, there's... The, there's this feeling of diminishing returns that eventually happens when you live inside of a victim's mindset, mm-hmm. which is, and here's the thing, Dan, like maybe you are a victim, but yeah, even if you are at a certain point, you, you have to figure out how to let go of that mm-hmm. and move forward. Do you think, um, how about forgiveness? Well, I have so many feelings about <laughs> forgiveness. I know. I, I knew topic. you would. I knew you would. I do, though. I actually had this conversation with a friend of mine who's a therapist on her podcast, and I don't feel like we should just blanketly forgive people. And that's just my own personal opinion. And I'm not advocating that, like, you know, we, we hold on to, like, resentment and bitterness and, like, seek revenge on them and make that our life's purpose. But I do think that... Um, we can forgive ourselves for that choice and, and, you know, just be like, I don't forgive this person. What they did was really unforgivable. I'm going to pick them up and move them here though, because then they don't have no impact on my life. I can, I can work to let them go so that they do not impact my life. I can reckon with what happened between us so that I can find my peace with it. And, tell them, go ahead, live your life. I wish you well, but I'm done. And, and put it away without having to be like, you know, I've, I've known wonderful people who are like, I must forgive this person in order to move on. And I'm like, no, you don't have to forgive that person to move on. No, you don't. You can actually get to choose when and how you move on, irregardless of them or anybody else. So take the lesson. Whatever the lesson is, take it. And then move on and then wish them good luck. Mm -hmm. That doesn't necessarily mean you have to say it's okay what you did. It's not. Mm -hmm. And so I have a lot of feelings about that. And not everybody will agree with me on many of my opinions, but that's okay. (laughs) Uh huh. Opinions are like assholes. We all have. (laughs) That's right. Um, I have so many, Dan. (laughs) You and I could be on the phone for like 
three days. I, wonder, I have so many. I wonder if the person saying I can't move forward until I forgive them is really saying I can't move forward until they say sorry. Right. Or I don't want to move forward or I can't move forward. I don't believe in myself. I don't think I can do it. But yes. And I, and I have to say, this brings me to the subject of closure, which I also feel very, very strongly about because I know so many people and I'm not talking about closure in regards to death, to the, to the loss of a loved one. I'm talking about closure in relationship with a partner, in relationship to a job, in relationship to a friendship. I'm talking about the need for somebody else to give us permission to move on, that we need to have something from another person. And I always say, like, if my horrible ex-boyfriends came up to me and sat down and told me exactly why they did the things that they did, A, I wouldn't believe them. B, I don't even know if they're self-actualized enough to even tell me the truth. And C, it doesn't matter. Because that experience is no longer about them. It's about me. And I need to figure that out. And that's hard for people, Dan, because I've talked to so many people over the past several years who've come to me from the talk, and they're, they can't stop talking about what the other person did. And when I say, give me five minutes without what he or she said, didn't say, did, just about you, they can't because looking at ourselves is hard. It's just hard. And it's harder for some of us than others because we don't know what, we f- what we're going to find when we really go in there. Mm-hmm. And the things that we learn about ourselves and the things that we learn about people that we love, like our parents who did the best they could, but maybe they didn't do everything perfect. And we learned a few things. We don't want to harbor any negative feelings towards them or whoever else. So it's just there's just a lot of reasons to avoid that journey, mm-hmm. but there's also a lot of reasons to embrace it. What was the hardest thing you learned about yourself? I think the hardest thing I learned about myself was that I was really shortchanging myself, really, really shortchanging myself. And that the way I saw myself through the lens of love and relationship was very desperate. And what, as if I was not worthy of certain things because I was not aesthetically perfect. And my belief system told me that I had to be that to be loved in love and relationship. And I never put those two things together consciously. I just knew that I had to have a boyfriend all the time because that was validation for my worth. And even if the boyfriends were awful, it was my job to make sure that they never left which also meant that I would say when they treated me horribly and wanted to go leave, walk away, that it was my job to beg them to stay, whatever that looked like. And that's what I learned about myself, that all of that came from this idea that if I wasn't aesthetically perfect, which I didn't see myself as being, I had to do anything I could to, to have love. And you know, I felt really embarrassed and really ashamed about that for a long time until I just did it anymore. And then I just said, ah, I am imperfect. Okay, moving on. Jill, you are talking to so many, you're talking directly to, for example, me and yes. Yes. many, many, many people. I mean, yeah. so now I've, I, I am in a 
beautiful relationship, the best relationship I've been in for, you know, in my adult life, Yay. my life life. Yay. Um, it, but it's hard. I, I remember being, um, there was an adjustment period when I met him because I hadn't met anyone that like good mm-hmm. or like kind or where I felt mm-hmm. that like, safe and happy and excited and myself that's the word yeah that's the word safe yeah tell me about being with somebody for so long and then you met your now husband a year and a half after Mm -hmm. broke up and now you Mm -hmm. have this beautiful life with your husband what was there must have been a like a sort of an adjustment period right did you absolutely back and be like how do i handle this good situation well i would I would actually say it's so it's interesting because I'm going to write this down so I don't forget this point because I think it's really important and I wanted to get to it, especially for you, Dan, Um, because when we feel like we're in a really good situation, it's scary because now we really have something to lose. And yet, and yet. When you have big wild love, which is self-love with the intention to let go of things that are not right for us, because letting go of things involves risk and people won't, don't want to take risk. When you have that, that beca- the charge really comes out of that. So like for me, I, I went through an identity crisis. I was like, I used to be Jill and Hector. Now who am I as Jill? And now who am I as Jill and Dan? And but being with my husband was never scary. Like it was when I would be with Hector with other people, because I had big wild love. I had the ground under my feet and I knew that I could survive. And I knew that I would always be okay. I knew that I could do more than survive. I knew that I could thrive. And so I didn't need him the same way that I needed the others. Not that I want him to leave or I want anything to happen, because we're hardwired for safety. We're hardwired to cling to safety. And so when we have that safety, then we have much more to lose. So it's like I say, you know, if you are someone who wants to take a big leap in your life, whether that's letting go of a relationship, letting go of the fear or the insecurity or anything else that you may feel inside of a new wonderful relationship or letting go of a job that you've had for a really long time, or even like in these COVID times, like letting go of all the things you thought were true, you know, about yourself and your life. And like, you're just looking at everything. If you walk to the edge of that cliff and you don't see a net, you will never jump. But if you know that you are the net, you will jump every single time. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And it's like the best way I can explain it because it is really, really true. And it sounds corny and cliched and all those crazy things. And I can tell you, Dan, like when I was growing up, we didn't talk about self-love. We didn't talk about any of that. Like when in my generation, the prize was getting married, preferably in my world to a rich, jo- rich Jewish doctor. Okay. It was, it was getting the still remains a great was, prize, still a great prize, <laughs> still a great prize. Like, right. right. Like, you know, it was like, I don't care how much of yourself you need to sacrifice to do it. That's your prize. Mm. But, you know, and I'm talking, and I'm not just talking about like blanket self-love. I mean, I'm talking about a very intentional kind of self-love, 
that allows you to let go of what's standing between what you want. Like in your situation, as was it could have been in mine, it's very scary when you come off the heels of relationships that are not serving you and you finally have the best, greatest relationship you've ever had. Holy shit balls. Now you really have something to lose. Like now shit's getting real, you know, and you don't want to mess it up. But the fact of the matter is, is you won't. You won't, as long as you have the big wild love, you won't because you will always organically and naturally and reflexively take actions that serve you and in turn serve your partner. Mm-hmm. And if you, you know, and I always say this to people, you don't have to be perfect to be loved. Go with that idea. None of us are. In fact, I said to my husband on our third date, I said, I'm sorry. And he said, for what? And I said, I don't know, for anything that I'm going to do over the next, like how many hundreds of years we are together, like in this life and in the ground, whatever, because we are imperfect humans, but with the right person, it doesn't matter. It's all about communication. That's it. That's the whole story. Mm-hmm. It's only, just about communication, but only communicate with someone who you, who you're safe with, who you're, you know, mono we mono with, like right. you be a big, wild, loving person, go find another big, wild, so that you can be grown-ups together in a relationship. Mm-hmm. How was writing the book? <laughs> oh, it was so fun. Well, you know, Dan, I'm a, I'm a journalist by trade, and I'm a writer by trade. And so I've written so many things. And, I mean, writing the book was really fun. It was really challenging for me because I am a journalist by trade, so I'm not supposed to have any opinions. So writing this book coming from my own place was so Oh my God, it was so incredibly joyful for me because I'm like, I was, I was made to tell people what to do. It's like, (laughs) it was like, so right, you know, Uh Uh and now I'm working on a novel and that's, that's really fun too. You know, I mean, it's just, um, but I felt really excited about it because people were coming to me with the same questions and I I can only write so many DMS a day. And I'm like, finally, I'm like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to put the whole tone, it it all in one tone. So anyone who has a question about, you know, how do I know when it's time to let go? What exactly does it mean to let go? How do I know if I did the right thing? How do I know if I did the wrong thing? What can I actually do? Like, I was tired of seeing people say it's time to let go and telling me, giving me absolutely no idea how to do it. So I was very, very important to me to create a very tangible way backed by science for people to do this myself included. And so it was really, it was really fun to write. It was really felt really good to write. I will tell you that my book was published right as every single solitary bookstore in the, you know, free entire planet closed down. So, so that was not a delight. And I still hold on to a lot of that. Sadly, you know, I did spend a lot of time, you know, feeling like a victim in the as I do in the bathroom with cookies and I'm, I'm out now. I'm out now. It's all good. But, um, but I loved writing it. I loved it. Thank you for that question because I really loved writing it. What is um, the thing that people can do right now as they're on a walk, cleaning their house, driving their car? What is the thing they can do to make their life better right now by letting go? Well, letting go. I mean, can change everything. Because if you are looking for a new car, but there's two cars in the garage, where are you going to put it? 
So if you're holding on to something in your life, in love or in a job or in, you know, a friendship or a family relationship, or even in your mind, even in your, especially in your mind, like a limiting belief that is inspiring you to make the same bad decisions over and over, just because it's safe and comfortable, getting rid of it opens up space, letting go opens space. It gives, it gives you room for something else to come in that you get to choose. It's like an ongoing do-over. And so if you want a new mental car or a new mental job or a new whatever, you can't have two cars in your garage because there's no room for it. So something has to give and you get to choose what that is and be very intentional about how it happens and what comes next. Jill, thank you for your TED Talk, for Big Wild Love, for your work, for coming Mm. on and for being you. Thank you, Dan. This was so awesome. I love talking to you. Awesome. And good luck. You don't need it. You're going to, you're going to do great.